Let's pray. This is the day the Lord has made. We recognize that, Lord. No matter what you have for us in this day and in this week and in the weeks to come, we know that you have made them all. And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for us when as yet there were none of them. And so we praise you for that. We know every circumstance, every moment in time is sovereignly governed by you. And so this time, this hour is in your hands and under your control. And every person who is here is here today because whether they know it or not, you brought them. So give us ears to hear. May we take Jesus' admonition not only to hear, but to be careful how we listen. May we listen with a mind toward glorifying you. May we listen with a mind that is prepared, a heart that is prepared to seek changes where they are needed, seek growth where it is required, and pursue the joy of knowing you and becoming like you. There is no more worthy goal, and so we ask for your help. Now, Father, encourage us in that goal, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in Philippians chapter 3, and this will be our last time in Philippians chapter 3. If the Lord tarries for another hour, that is. Um, this week, eight, an eight-person team of willing servants plans to pack their bags, haul their luggage to the airport, and board a plane for Uganda. We'll be leaving uh, next Saturday. And um, over the years, I've had the opportunity to go to SOS Ministries down in Uganda, Africa. This will be my fourth or fifth time down there. And every time I, I leave the country, I have similar experiences. Uh, similar things happen in my heart. Let me tell you, first of all, that uh, one of the joys that I have, uh, the, the most important thing for me and the most exciting thing for me is I'm going to get uninterrupted time, at least for the most part, with my son Wesley before he leaves college. And that's my primary goal here. Yeah, I'm going to be doing some teaching and, and serving with the team, but I get to take my son on this trip, and that's rare for me. And so, praise the Lord, Wesley gets to come. But not only Wesley, but Ken Basinger, Brian Snodgrass, Rhonda and Catherine McKenzie and Helen Vibraska. And last but not least, I haven't forgotten you, Josh. Josh is on the soundboard. Uh, Josh Long is also coming. He's kind of a straggler to get on the team, but he is on. And we look forward to getting to know Josh better on this trip. And so before I get started with the message, I just want to say on behalf of the whole team, thank you to all of you who had a part in making this trip possible and for those of you who have committed to praying for this team, uh, there are all kinds of things that can go wrong on a trip like this, and, uh, and a number of them have gone wrong over the years, uh, and yet here we are, and ready to do it again. Um, but the Lord is in control of all of that, and we just want to go down and bless that ministry and help them as we can, and so we'll have a, a week or so to do that. So we covet your prayers. In the mystery of God's providence, I have found myself on assignment in other countries far more than I ever thought as a young pastor I would be. Um, first time I ever preached, in fact, I was thinking about this this week, it was kind of a, a foretelling of the Lord's 
uh, will for my life. The first time I ever preached a sermon was on a little island mountain on the top of the mountain just off the coast of Haiti. And uh, the pastor that I traveled with said, you're preaching tonight. <laughs> and so I did. And uh, I'll never forget it. It was a grass hut. It was very small. Uh, I had a lantern sitting on the podium in front of me. Bugs flying. Every light attracts bugs, right? And uh, every square inch of that place, even behind me, there were, there were people standing up against me in the doorway behind me. And in all the windows, all I could see was eyes from the light. And since that time, the Lord has given me opportunity to travel to such places as the Yucatan and Mexico. Some of you remember that trip. A number of you were on that one. Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Siberia last year. A number of Central Asian countries that I'm not supposed to name uh, online. And uh, I have to confess that whenever I find myself in another country, I always feel uneasy. People ask me, when you go to Russia or one of those countries, how do you know what to do when you get there? And I said, it may surprise you, but it's easy. I wake up in the morning, and they come and they say, come, eat breakfast. Go get changed. Take shower. Get in car. Stand in pulpit. Pray. Sit down. <laughs> get back in car. Go to sleep. Wake up. Do it again, right? Repeat. So that part's really easy. But when we're out of the country, and especially in places like Africa or really remote nations, I always feel uneasy. As much as I enjoy the fellowship with the brothers in those lands, and as much as I enjoy exercising my gift in teaching and preaching, uh, my heart is always drawn somewhere else. My heart is always drawn homeward. I would rather be here. I'd rather be with my family and you, my spiritual family. What I'm referring to here isn't merely homesickness. The fact of the matter is that when I am over there, I'm a foreigner. I'm a foreigner. I, I come from a different country. I'm in a country that is not my own. Moreover, there are tangible documented proofs of the fact that I carry around in my pocket everywhere I go that remind me that I am a foreigner. For example, this. This is my passport. It's an expired one. I asked my kids to grab an expired one so I don't lose it here and have problems at the end of the week. You can tell because it's got holes in it, and that's what they do for expired passports. But this is proof when I'm there. I have to carry this everywhere, and you do too when you travel. Um, a wise brother friend of mine said uh, one time when we were traveling, he said, remember, uh, a man without a passport is a man without a country. You don't ever want to be found without your passport. And it always kind of makes you uneasy. Where is that thing? Where is the proof that I'm a U.S. citizen? Where is the proof that I don't, that this is not my home? And there's a, another and a better place. And so whenever I draw that passport out of my pocket and hand it off to an official at some border in a foreign country, I'm reminded that this place, whatever this place may be, is not my home. I'm, as the black spiritual says, I'm just a passing through. If Frank Shannon were here, he would say amen. Are you here, Frank? There he is. There he is. Okay. In the passage before us this morning, Paul wants to remind us that Christians are living... You and I are living as expatriates in a foreign country. This world is not our home. It's not. 
And we may feel like it's our home, we may try to make it our home, but it is not our home. We really are just passing through. Our true citizenship is in heaven, and that truth has implications for how we should live now. The reality that our citizenship is in heaven and that one day we will be there and we will be home for the first time, that should have implications on how we live today. But before we talk about that, see what Paul says about that, let's stand together in honor of God's word and, and read this passage of scripture. This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 22. Follow along with me now as I read verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But... Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subdue all things to himself. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. Of course, this passage is written within the context of Paul's appeal to the Philippian believers and us that, that we should engage in the pursuit of holiness. This is what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Paul is concerned about sanctification. He is concerned that we learn from his example that sanctification is not afloat on the inner tube down the lazy river of life. It is more like an Olympic athlete pressing toward the prize, striving to win and what are we striving to win? Not earn, but to attain by his grace. We are seeking to attain two things that we've mentioned several times here from the text. One is to know Christ experientially, not just know about him, not just discover what we can find on Google about him. No, 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 no. To know him in relationship experientially. I want to know him, Paul says, in the power of his resurrection and even fellowship in his sufferings. Whatever, whatever it means to know him, I want that. And the other thing is to become like him. Those are the two goals of sanctification. To know Christ in relational terms and to become like him. That is sanctification. Growing in those two things. This is what Paul wanted. This was the prize that he was after. He was dissatisfied with his level of sanctification. He was dissatisfied with his spiritual growth. And yet he understood that God's requirement is, is more about direction than perfection. There's no condemnation here. He himself, after all of his previous sins, could say, by the grace of God I am what I am, and so can we. But his grace not only is a benefit to us. It comes with obligations. We are to pursue holiness, and we're to do it like a professional athlete. Paul calls such a life, in chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, it is a life worthy of the gospel. This is the preface to everything else he's writing here. We should be striving for a life that is consistent or is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
what makes us, what motivates us to pursue that kind of life? What motivates us to run the race? Why strive for sanctification? At the end of chapter 3, Paul offers two motivations, two motivating reasons. You should do it, number one, because of what you are. And you should do it, number two, because of what you will one day be, what you will become. Let's look at the first, beginning with chapter, or verse 20. Uh, the other verses were there just for context, but uh, for our, our reading purposes. But here in verse 20, once again, let me just read the beginning statement in verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, the conjunction, but, is an adversative. Paul is contrasting one thing against another. He's exposing the difference between seeing yourself as a citizen of earth against self-identifying as a citizen of heaven. In the previous two verses that I read a minute ago, he describes some who viewed themselves merely as earthlings. This really is their home, and they're trying to, to grab all the gusto they can before life is over. Look at verses 18 and 19 again, how he describes them. For many, he says, for many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Interesting that Paul was concerned about these people and he wrote this letter with tears. They walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We, however, are not like them, or at least we're not supposed to be. Believers, to the extent that you are undistinguishable from the world, to that degree you are outside of God's will for your life. Rather, we should strive to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. We should strive to be like Christ in all holiness, to show the world what God is like, to show the world what Christ is like, to show the world what the gospel is like. This is why we exist. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. This is why we're here. We are those who, according to chapter 3, verse 3, should serve in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. What's the motivation for doing that? Well, Paul does not say that it's because we will one day be citizens. But rather, that the motivation should be this, that we already are citizens of heaven. Dr. Lightfoot renders this phrase, our citizenship is even now in heaven. Or as Paul would say to the, the Ephesians, we now are sitting with Christ on the throne. We are with him. We are in him. And, and by the way, he's not talking about eschatology. This is not an eschatological statement he's making. He's not looking to the future. He's not looking to the eschaton. He's not speaking about what is to come, though he will in the next verse. Rather, he's reminding us of what we already are. 
When you think about it, Paul's just offering us another way of reiterating the doctrine of adoption or the, adoption, uh, uh, or, or the doctrine of new birth, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of our redemption. By the sovereign grace of God, we have been officially declared. Now let this sink in, and I'm going to help you sink this in a little bit. By the grace of God, we have been officially declared by the King of Kings to have full citizenship in his country. You know what? No passport necessary in the kingdom of God. No passport necessary. You are not a foreigner in the kingdom of God. Now, the first observation we should make about our citizenship in heaven is this. We don't need a passport. We are already citizens, and we didn't earn it. We didn't earn our citizenship. That's not true of everyone in the world. This is a spiritual reality for those of us who are followers of Christ, believers in Christ, who are repenters, as my brothers in Russia like to say it. You may call yourself a Christian, but are you a repenter? That's what they want to know. That's their term for a real Christian. And we're not citizens of God's country because we've made application and we've paid the necessary fees. No. We are citizens of heaven by the free grace of God through Jesus Christ. We might say it like this. It's by the blood of Christ and his righteousness rather than our own that we have been made worthy of citizenship in heaven. It's by the new birth. It's by adoption, having been given a new nature and a new name, that we have been made citizens. Those who are citizens of birth need no naturalization papers. You know what naturalization papers are? I would dare say most of you don't know what that, that is because you've never had to do it. Naturalization papers are the papers that you have to fill out to get the long process started to become a citizen of another country. In this for us, it would be America. People are still trying to get into this country and doing everything they can to get into this country, legally or illegally. But if you do it legally, you have to go through the naturalization process. And it's badly named because it's nothing's natural about it. <laughs> Consider this. If, if you had been born in another country and wanted to become naturalized to the U.S., you would have to go through quite a process. First, you'd have to meet the eligibility requirements. Not, not everybody can even start the process. For example, you have to be at least 18 years old. If you're under 18 and you somehow show up on the border and want to be naturalized as a citizen, uh, you're ineligible. And then there's not only an age requirement, you must first get a green card, and then you have to live in this country for five years and not cause any trouble. You need to demonstrate that you can read English and write in English and, and basically uh, be able to speak at least conversational English. You must get a minimal education so that you at least know how the government of the United States works. And what's obvious to me is uh, our born citizens know less about that than those who become naturalized. We had a brother in this church a, a few years ago became a naturalized citizen. He came from one of the South American countries, and he came in one day and started quizzing us 
on, 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 on civics and on popular culture, and, and, uh, and it was stunning how much the rest of us didn't know that he had to memorize. Not only that, but you need to demonstrate that you have some level of moral character. You can't be a troublemaker. You must demonstrate a commitment to the principles and ideals of the U.S. Constitution. You will then be subject to a speaking exam, a reading exam, a writing exam, a civics exam, and by the way, if you don't pass any of those, you have to retake the exam. And when you think about it, there are some similarities between the process of becoming a naturalized U.S. citizen and the process that many people believe will achieve citizenship in the kingdom of God. We've got to earn it. We've got to work hard for it. Many religions, even some that claim to be Christian, have developed a whole complicated system with hurdles to jump and hoops to clear and tests, exams to take. And in, in every case, those systems are selling a works righteousness scheme of achieving eligibility for entrance into heaven. They believe there's some kind of naturalization process. But that's not God's way. Listen, the only way to become a citizen in the kingdom of heaven is to be born there. You have to be born there. You say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. Remember the other requirement that we saw a couple weeks ago, the, the requirement out of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you've got to be born there, and you've got to be perfect. You've got to be as good as God. You say, well, that's not fair. I mean, none of us were born in heaven. But um, this is consistent with, Jesus, with what Jesus taught, though, isn't it? Remember his conversation with Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes and says, oh, teacher, you know, yada, yada, yada. And Jesus sees right through it. And Jesus' response to all of that pablum and flattery, he says to him, truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you have probably heard the word, the term born again, and you, you think that's an evangelical term that we made up. It's not. Jesus made it up. Jesus used it to describe an invisible happening that occurs to all who believe, all who come to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. They are born again. Why birth? Why birth? Why the illustration of birth? Because you had nothing to do in it. If you are a child of God, if, if you, how many of you have been born? <laughs> Yesterday I read the, um, the article about the lady who uh, gave birth at Chick-fil-A <laughs> this week. That baby had nothing to do with that. Right? I mean, it was a surprise to everybody. You had nothing to do with your birth. In the same context, Jesus tells Nicodemus, what, you don't understand this? You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't know how salvation works? Don't you understand that the wind blows wherever it wishes? Speaking of the Holy Spirit. You can't see it coming. You don't know where it's going, but it has its effect. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is God's work. It is God's work, just as you did nothing for your natural birth, you contributed nothing for spiritual birth. 
You have to be born. You cannot work your way into citizenship. You cannot be naturalized into the kingdom of heaven. You see, coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ is not like becoming a naturalized citizen of another country. It's more like being born. It's not something you can achieve for yourself or do by yourself. It's something that you receive because of the gracious will of another, in this case, God. The contrast cannot be more stark. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born from above. Listen, going to church doesn't make you a citizen of heaven any more than standing in your garage makes you a car or going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Going to church doesn't make you a citizen of heaven. Serving the poor does not make you a citizen of heaven. Loving your neighbor doesn't make you a citizen of heaven. You have to be born again. You have to be born there. And when a sinner is granted true life in the Spirit by the grace of God alone, he immediately becomes a disciple of Christ, a child of God, a citizen of heaven. And God then treats you, listen, God then treats you as if you had been born in his city, in his kingdom, in his house. There aren't many in our church body who could even claim to be Jews. And if there are any, you probably weren't born in Jerusalem And if you were, Jerusalem really here is just a metaphor for heaven when we look at these things in other passages. But by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, you can become a citizen of the kingdom by birth. And this is amazing to me. I want you to turn back to the passage that I had Jason read earlier And it is Psalm 87. We're going to read it again, uh, most of it, not all of it. It's only seven verses long. Psalm 87, and I'd really like for you to look at it. And so don't just listen to me talk about it. Open your Bible there, maybe keep your finger back in Philippians because we're going to go back there. But (laughs) Psalm 87, and listen to how it reads. Verse 1, on the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, among those who know me. Now, I want you to listen carefully. This is God speaking, and he's going to give a short list of people who know him. Okay, now we've already talked about what knowledge is, right? Paul said that I may know him. It's this kind of knowledge. Who is it, Lord? Who is it among the nations who knows you? Among those who know me, I mention, here we go, Rahab, um, Babylon. Babylon, think, uh, think Nebuchadnezzar. Destroyed Jerusalem. Took Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a whole lot of other people into bondage, captivity for 70 years. Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, 
Think Philistines, think uh, birthplace of Goliath. Not friendly. Tyre and Cush. And notice what he says. This one was born there, they say. And on Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. One commentator writes, the second section here is startling. One expects references to those who know him, but the list is composed of Gentile rather than Jewish nations. Rahab, a nickname for Egypt. Babylon, place of Nebuchadnezzar. Philistia, we think of Goliath. Tyre, a Phoenician city, culturally Canaanite. I mean, the Canaanites were the ones that Israel drove out. And Cush, a region south of Egypt, all of which had been at one time or another enemies of the people of God and enemies of God. And yet, the Most High himself will establish Zion in order to allow the peoples to be treated, listen, as if they were born there. I'm going to do something a little different. Frank Shannon, are you still back there? Do you have Jewish descent? Are you a Jew? Have you put your faith entirely and alone in the Lord Jesus Christ? I've got news for you. You were born in Zion. You were born there. As far as God is concerned, you were born there. Ken Basinger, did you know what your birth certificate ought to say? Born, not in Chick-fil-A, but born in <laughs> Zion, you were born in Zion as far as God is concerned. Forget about where you were born. You know where I was born? I was born in New Jersey. No, I wasn't. Not as far as God is concerned. I was born in Zion. I am a citizen of heaven by birth. And God has always viewed it this way. I mean, we're looking all the way back into the Psalms for this. It's always been by birth. It has always been by blood. And it's been by the blood of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. We are beneficiaries in the same way we were beneficiaries when we were born. You, beloved, if you belong to Christ, you may say, I'm not worthy of belonging to Christ. Absolutely, you're not worthy. You are not worthy. You are the farthest thing from it. And I would dare say some of you here feel like you're unworthy to have God listen to your smallest and weakest prayers because of the sin in your life. If you know Christ, you were born there. You were born in his country. When you are visiting with him, you don't need a passport. You are a citizen by birth. I don't know about you, but that encourages me enormously because I know my sin. And, and like David said in Psalm 139, it is ever before me. Psalm 51. So why should we strive to live lives that are worthy of the gospel? <laughs> are you kidding? 
because of what we are. We are citizens of Zion. We are citizens of the country that belongs to the King of Kings. We have the privilege of living as his representatives. You know what? If you were a college kid coming out of a, I'll just name your school. You're used to wearing flip-flops and shorts even in the winter, T-shirts. You dress as funky as you can because you can. And if, by some strange providence, you met someone who gave you a job, who gave you a job, who gave you a job, and you found yourself working for the President of the United States, maybe on a third or fourth or fifth tier level, and you were sent out by him to declare things from him, you know the first thing that would be true about you? You'd look differently. <laughs> you wouldn't be wearing flip-flops and shorts and that funky bandana you wear on your head. You'd be dressed in such a way that shows the world what your president is like. If you were a king, you would speak in such a way that shows the world what your king is like. If he were the ruler of your land, your country, your humor would be something that would be commensurate with the dignity of your king. Your life would be different. You would change. You'd become like him. That's what Paul is calling for. So first of all, we should strive to live a life that's worthy of the gospel because of what we are. We are citizens of heaven. Second, we should strive for sanctification because of what we will be. Verses 20 and 21. Let's flip back to Philippians. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. As expatriated citizens of heaven, we know our time on earth is short. And we believe by the divine authority of Scripture that one day, Jesus, our King, he's, just, he's not going to leave us long in this foreign land. And one day he will come, as he has promised, and he will receive us to himself we will be caught up into the clouds with him. And there we will live in his kingdom forever. When he appears, all who remain and believe in his name will be caught up with him and taken home. Home where we are citizens by birth. Home where we are forever rescued from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Don't you long for that? Home where there will be no more spiritual armor that we have to wear to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. Home where there will be no more death and no more pain and no more sorrow, no more cancer. And we'll be given new bodies that are perfectly suited for heaven. 
No more heart disease, no more diabetes, no more asthma, Alzheimer's, angina, what's it called? Angina. Why? Because verse 21. He will transform our lowly body into the likeness of his glorious body. And he's speaking there, not just of you as an individual, but as us as a church. And I don't mean Calvary Bible Church. I mean all of us, including our brothers and sisters with whom we will worship this week, next week, in Uganda. He will transform all of us. And what a day that will be. And how will he do it? He will do it, watch this, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. In other words, he will do it by divine fiat. He who speaks and whole constellations burst into existence. He who speaks and the dead come to life. He who speaks and the wind and the sea obey him. He who speaks and demons take their flight. He who said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth will simply speak and maybe not say a word, just his presence and we will be changed. And we will become like him when we see him as he is. Don't you long for that day? You long for that day? Do you long for it? Then live like it. That's what Paul is saying. If you long for it, you should live like it. And you know what that means? Some of you got to put some things off. There are some things in your life you just need to get, get rid of. It's time to do some radical amputation. If your eye offends you, gouge, gouge it out, metaphorically. If your, hand, if your right hand, it's interesting, Jesus says, right hand. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. The one you depend on the most, the most precious thing in all the world, cut it off. If you long for that day, live for that day. When we see Jesus, our sanctification will be complete. And you know what I love about Paul? He loved these Philippians. He was so convinced of their salvation that in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. It'll be done. It'll be over. The task will have been fulfilled. And so when we see Jesus in a twinkling of an eye, we will not only be rescued from this state of being expatriated from his country, from our home, but we will be transformed. For now, however, living in a foreign country, we live as emissaries of our king. We are called to strive by the Spirit and the Word, to know Him more and more, to become like Him more and more. And as we do, we, we will discover that all along, He was orchestrating things for His own glory and for your incalculable joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I know more could be said here 
but I think this is enough for today. May we rejoice in this truth. And may we leave here realizing that it comes with great responsibility. Thank you, Lord. It was by your grace that we were born in Zion. Thank you that on that day, we will see people from Babylon, and people from Tyre, and people from Philistia, from Egypt, from all over the world, from every people, language, tribe, you are drawing men and women and children to yourself. They are coming to you by birth, by new birth. And it is wonderful in our eyes. And so we praise you. We bless your name because you alone are worthy. And we give thanks for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.